You see, we believe that the house of God, that the church, the, the, the formation of God's people gathered together are meant to dwell not only, like we said last week, in the homes of people, but we are meant to dwell in the cities. We should have no ivory tower syndrome, which is come to us and we'll serve you. No, we are to go to people. You know, all of us in our life have role models. We have people in our life that we look up to, people that we want to be like. And we all could go around and share some of the ones that we had as children that no longer are role models because we realized we could never be like them or it was a pipe dream or maybe they turn out not to be a great role model. But we all have role models. Even now in your career, in business, in finance, in medicine, in law, whatever you do, in teaching, in caring for your kids, you have a role model. You have someone that you're looking to that you want to grow to become like. And for us as a church, we have a role model too. And that is the church of Jesus Christ as it has shown itself in history. And one of the churches that we want to model ourselves after is the church in Ephesus. This is where we find ourselves tonight in Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul is in the church of Ephesus. This is his second time arriving there. He was there for a little bit before. They wanted him to stay, but he had to keep moving on a missionary journey. So people have become, have started to come to faith in Christ. There's been some powerful couples and leaders that have been in that community for a little bit of time. Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and others. And now Paul returns and he begins to minister to that community. He spends two years there. And as he is there within that community, we read this in verse 8 through 10 from our text tonight in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8 through 10. This is God's word. It says this, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. You see, Paul often when he goes into a city, goes to the religious in the synagogue first. So he's doing the same thing here. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way was a label given to the church, given to Christians by those in the Greco-Roman world. Speaking evil of the church or the way before the congregation in the synagogue, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. The disciples are not the disciples you think about that are sent out after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, these are disciples or followers of Christ within the city. So the Christians that are followers of Christ. He takes them out, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Apostle Paul, as he gets into Ephesus, he does what he, he often does. He goes into the synagogue. He reasons with the religious. Remember, Paul is a Jew. He was a Pharisee, a religious leader in the Jewish community. And so he goes to the Jews in a city first. Oftentimes, that is where the church begins to be formed. As he speaks about Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. But now when he's in Ephesus, he's facing opposition. He's in the synagogue, but there's people that are opposing him. And they're speaking evil about the way, the followers of Christ in the church. And so he hits the eject button. He leaves the synagogue, and he goes to what is called the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, back in this time, there was a big emphasis on lectures and philosophers and teachers that would open up opportunities for people to come and learn about different thoughts and perspectives. And so there's this essentially space 
that is a, a lecture hall that Tyrannus is the, the sitting lecturer. And he would typically lecture in the morning and in the evening. That was the, the common practice. In the morning, you would lecture and people would come. And in the evening, you do that as well. Why? Because the middle of the day was very, very hot. And so people took naps in the middle of the day. You're like, amen. I heard a couple amens. They remember, even then it had no AC, okay. So it's like, okay, sleep in the day, have your siesta. And so Paul, as he pulls out of the synagogue, he's figuring out where to go. Where is the church going to find itself? Where are people going to gather to worship God and learn about him? He rents the hall of Tyrannus at an inopportune time in the middle of the day when most people are taking a nap. Some of you have come up to me over the years and been like, when are we going to have a morning service? We're renting this building, which is a church, praise God. But for many of you at an inopportune time, some of you are like, 5 p.m. is great, never change it. Don't worry, we're, never gonna, we're always going to have a 5 p.m. service, okay. But if God ever gave us the ability to have a morning service, we would certainly take a hold of that opportunity as well. But we're planted in a place where we're renting in a city that... 5 p.m. feels like an inopportune time. To be honest, 11 a.m. or 10 a.m. in Miami is also an inopportune time for a lot of people. Just church in general is an inopportune time. (laughs) So Paul does this, and he believes that the gospel message is attractive. It has attracting power. And people are going to come, and they're going to hear, and they're going to forsake their siesta to go to a service in the middle of the day. You see, one of the things that we see here at the very beginning of this passage, the very beginning of this chapter, is that the house of God, when it dwells in the cities of people, it challenges cultural priorities. It challenges cultural priorities. In this culture, a siesta in the middle of the day was a priority. Paul believes that the house of God, the church, planted in the city with the gospel can challenge that priority. Now here's a question. What priorities are challenged here by the house of God? By the church, by the gathering of God's people? What priorities are challenged? I think there's a lot of them, but I'm just going to list a few. I think here's one cultural priority we have in Miami in particular. I'm sure it's other cities as well, but it's this mentality. Work hard. What's next? Play hard. You're feeling it. Work hard, play hard. Here's the mentality. You work hard during the week, and then you play hard on the weekends. There's a big emphasis in our culture, and in particular in Miami, upon your leisure. Making sure that you maximize your weekend. That you take all the, you take holistic advantage, all the advantage you can of all the time that you have so that you can refresh yourself, so you can relax, and that will bring stability to your life. Which events am I going to go to? Which people am I going to see? Which night am I going to say no to everybody so I can just watch Netflix? What am I going to do to have the leisure that I need so that I can work hard during the week and then I can play hard on the weekend? And so often, here's what happens. There's church on a Sunday is combating that because there's a mentality. Sometimes, well, I got to get prepared for the week. I can't go to church today. I had a, I'm in a crazy busy week and I, I got a lot to do. So I can't go to church. I can't gather with God's people to worship because I need my leisure 
I need my downtime, I need to be away, I need to veg, I need to whatever the vernacular is, so that I can prepare myself to work hard so that next weekend I can play hard again. Or there's events that you're invited to. I don't know, I need, I need that. There's this belief that many of us feel that the right amount of leisure, as you've defined it for yourself, will provide you a healthy and stable lifestyle. And church becomes an optional opportunity for you to go to. Church is always there. It will be there whether or not you go. So it challenges that mentality of work hard, play hard. Another one, which I've talked about several times, and you know this, is FOMO. Fear of missing out. We are the city of FOMO. Because we have events happening all year round. We have opportunities to do fun, exciting things all the time. We have no winter. There is no, it's freezing outside, let me just watch movies all weekend. It's always beautiful. And in the winter, it's the, it's the better time to go to the beach than even the summer. Because in the summer it gets so hot, you have to wear socks to walk on the sand. Some of you don't know about that. It's true. But we have this, we live in a FOMO culture, fear of missing out. And here's the mentality, right? You get invited to something, an event, an engagement, a social outing, a brunch that extends to 7 p.m. And you feel like, wait, wait, okay, I I should go to that because I don't want to miss out on that opportunity, that fun And it's okay if I miss church where God's people are gathered together because church will be there next week. It's always there, 5 p.m., I know it. And if I hear it's really good, I'll just go online and watch it on demand. Fear of missing out. Believing that that's more important and more vital than service and gathering with God's people. You see, part of it is that we have this struggle with believing that there's actually something that's going to happen when we gather as God's people. See, Paul knows that the gospel has attracting power to call people together, to hear from God's word, to worship together, to sing together, to pray together. And that there's an expectation that there's going to be transformation. Some of us have, you know, fallen away from that, have forgotten that we're supposed to actually come to church, to service, expectantly. Like, God, you're going to do something. You're going to show me something. You're going to convict me. You're going to challenge me. You're going to encourage me. You're going to use me for someone else. I may have a conversation. I may walk away and feel so refreshed because you use my story to encourage somebody else I met that evening. I didn't even know that struggle I was having, and you released me from it. We don't come expectedly. We've kind of pushed down. And part of that is because another challenge that Sunday service combats is a cultural priority of self-directed spirituality. You see, many of us have fallen captive to believe that our spirituality is self-directed. It's on us to determine what our spirituality looks like and what our faith looks like. And so we choose what our truth is. And, And so when we actually come under a pastor or a teacher or a leader or a mentor or a guru or whatever it is for you, Whatever your experience has been, it's a guide. It's someone that every single person in our culture feels like, this is just a guide. These are, these are optional things for me to consider. No, no, we don't believe that as a church. We believe that good gospel preachers and mentors and leaders are submitted to the truth, God's word, which we believe is authoritative, 
And it's because we're surrendered to the truth who is Jesus Christ himself. What does he say? I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. Challenges that thought in us. See, I was thinking about that this week. Is that every single Sunday, God asks you a question. Will you choose siesta or service? Every Sunday. You see, and I don't say that because, of course, I want to see you. But because I believe that we're, we're meant to come to church expectantly. And that the house of God has attractive power to call people together and also transform people. That were to come expectantly. And Paul believed this. So he said, I'll rent the hall of Tyrannus in the middle of the day. It's gonna, God's going to call people. The gospel is going to compel people. And it's going to transform people. And those cultural priorities of the siesta, people are going to stay awake in the middle of the day. I believe it's going to happen. And guess what it did? People in Ephesus start to come to faith in Christ. It starts to spread. It starts to grow. And God begins to do miracles in the city. All types of things happen. People are healed. Evil spirits are cast out of people. But then there's something that begins to take place that shakes the foundation of the city. So as Paul is lecturing and having, not lecturing, but having a service, a worship service and teaching of God's word at the hall of Tyrannus, people are coming to faith. It's spreading, as it says, through all of Asia, not just in Ephesus, but it spreads to the surrounding cities. People are taking notice. People that do not believe in Jesus Christ. And we read this really peculiar story about this Jewish man who is a, a Jewish leader, and he has seven sons. It's called the seven sons of Sceva. That's their name. And they see that the, the name of Jesus is powerful. People are being healed, are being changed and transformed. They're giving up their siesta. So the seven sons of Sceva... They go to this man's house who is said to be possessed by evil spirits. And they use the name of Jesus to cast out this demon. They don't believe in Jesus. Like, hey, the name of Jesus has power. Let's use it. But this is like using a weapon that you're unfamiliar with. And it blows up in their hands. What happens in that house as they use the name of Jesus that they don't believe in to cast out these demons, is that the demons leap onto another man in that house. And then that man becomes full of extreme strength and begins to beat up the seven sons of Sceva. And for some reason, I don't know why, but they run out of the house naked and screaming. Okay, this shakes people. Like, if that happened today, you'd be like, what's going on? It shakes the city as they hear about this. They know about these people. They heard the story. It's spreading throughout the city. And then something very peculiar happens. It says that a bunch of followers of the way, or Christians, they realize the power of the name of Jesus, and they take their scrolls and their idols, because you see, they were secretly still engaged in witchcraft. They're secretly still engaged in witchcraft and sorcery and idol worship. And they take all of these scrolls and idols and they gather together a large group of them and they build a bonfire and they burn them as an act of repentance, as a confession of the secret sin that they've been engaging in, these dangerous practices they've been holding on to. 
because they see the power of the name of Jesus. Because you see, the, the city of Ephesus was a very pagan city. It was a very famous city because it had one of those seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. Four times the size of the Pantheon, made of entirely of marble. People from all over the world would gather to worship there. It attracted people from every known corner of the earth. And people were engaged in that city in witchcraft and sorcery and idol worship as it was attached to Artemis, this goddess. And some of the Christians were still engaged in those things. They previously practiced those things. They came to believe in faith in Christ. They became identified as people of the way. They forsook their, their siesta and went to service with Paul. They were growing in their faith, but they were still doing these things in secret. And when they heard about what happened to the seven sons of Sceva, they took all their scrolls and said, we're not playing games with Jesus anymore. And they threw it onto a bonfire and burned it up. And that story begins to go all throughout Ephesus and the surrounding cities. And even more people be begin to come to faith in Christ because they begin to see what's happening. The gospel is transforming the city as the church is planted right in the middle of it. You see, that's the second thing that we see. The house of God, when it dwells in the cities of people, it challenges the cultural spirituality and morality. It challenges the cultural spirituality and morality. So in Ephesus, it challenged sorcery and idol worship of the goddess Artemis. What's challenged here? If the house of God is dwelling here in the city of Miami, what is the cultural spirituality and morality that's being challenged? There are several things. I want to list a few. The first one is this. Follow your heart. This is a cultural, spiritual understanding and belief that so many of us have followed and practiced. Follow your heart. It, it feels innocent, but if you take it all the way, it can be really dangerous, which essentially means this. Truth is relative, and it really is about you following what feels right to you. It's not about you aligning yourself with what is actually true. It, it means that you're just to follow what feels good, what feels right. Follow your heart. Well, the prophet Jeremiah told, told us something that we're to be aware of, that the heart is deceitful above all things. See, the house of God should challenge that. You should be challenged when you're gathered with God's people to not follow your heart. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to your heart. Your heart is a great guide, is a great encouragement. It can convict you. It can empower you. It can lead you to dream. The heart is amazing. But it's also deceitful. And it can lead you in a path to, to believe lies and call them truth. And when you begin to follow your heart in a culture that wants nothing to do with the heart of God, it can lead you in a direction where you're like, whoa, how did I get here? How, how did I start believing this? How did I start engaging this? How did I start doing these things? And you stop aligning yourself with God's word. You, you don't think about following your faith. Just follow your heart. It feels right to you. That's one cultural, spiritual belief and, and moral position that I think the house of God, which dwells in the city, should challenge. A second one is very tailored to Miami, and that is this, a life of excess. Do you guys know that we live in a city of excess? Excessive spending, excessive drinking, excessive everything. We have a fear of being basic in Miami. 
We want to be extra. We do. I, I mean, you go and drive around. I was just driving here earlier today, and you know those like uh, Batmobile three, three, you know, wheel cars? Slingshots, yes. There's a million of them here. You go to like most other cities in the country, there's one. You know, it's the coolest guy in town. Here, like we could all go get one later, you know. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's so excessive. We're a city of excess. The house of God should challenge that. Should challenge that. Because we're called to a life of sacrifice. Generosity is sacrificial. As we're talking about in this campaign, giving of your time and your talent and your treasure, giving it away for the sake of other people, takes away from a life of excess. But the house of God challenges that. It's okay to live more simple. In fact, we're called to live in moderation in all things, not just in the things that we choose because they're easier to live in moderation with, but everything. The house of God also challenges this. It also, when it dwells in the cities of people, it challenges the accepted impurity of our city. We live in one of the most highly sexualized cities in the world. In the world. And I'll never forget it because the very first Sunday that I was here at Crossbridge Brickell preaching to see if you all wanted me to be your pastor six and a half years ago, I was told, hey, your sermon is on sex. I'm like, oh, so you want me to preach on sex in front of a bunch of people I don't know in the most highly sexualized city in the world. Great. I didn't, you know, at least something went right because you guys welcomed me in and it's been great to be here for six and a half years. But this is one of the most highly sexualized cities in the world. You see, here in Miami... Many people judge their value or they feel their value is judged based upon how they look, how many people they've slept with, how wild their weekend was. And you know that because you're around it all the time. People talking about that and bragging about what they've done and how crazy their weekend was and how wild their life is. One of the most highly sexualized cities in the world. What is the house of God dwelling in Miami challenge? That thought. That you should live like that. When scripture tells us what? Put to death sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires and greed and lust. Put it to death. Don't accept it. Don't just say, well, everyone's involved in this. It's just like, it's normal, right? No, put it to death. It should challenge that. Just like challenge in Ephesus, sorcery and idol worship. You see, some of these things, when we begin to believe these things, we practice these things and we accept them, sometimes God may challenge us in his word and it feels like one of these scenarios where we kind of get pricked and convicted and we got to go burn the idols in the bonfire. And some of you are like, ah, don't look at me. I'm feeling convicted. I'm feeling challenged by some of those things. Or maybe you have something else in your mind that you know the house of God, the church, God's word is convicting in you. Don't stay too uncomfortable because there's some really good news. 
And that is, in that story, do you see the power of the gospel? You see, what happens when the sons of Sceva get beaten up and they run out of the house naked because they use the name of Jesus, what they don't believe in, what happens is that the church gets convicted because they've been taking the name of Jesus for granted. They begin to realize they have nothing to do with the sons of Sceva. That's something happening in the city with people that don't understand Jesus' name and his power. They get convicted that they're doing things in secret that they know they should not be doing. And so they gather together and there's like a, a, a gathering and they all confess and they repent and they burn them up. The idols and the scrolls. What you do not read is this. That there was judgment upon their faith. You don't read that. Why? Because they are growing in their faith. They believe in Jesus. God is working miracles in their life. They're forsaking the siesta and they're at service. They are people of the way. And certainly God is using them in the city to lead so many people to faith because we, heard, we read that all of Asia has now heard from the word of the Lord. They're being used by God. But see, listen, this is so important for you to hear. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings salvation once, but it is constantly delivering you. It brings you salvation once. When you come to believe in faith in Christ and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, that he died for your sins, was buried in the grave, and literally came back alive to prove victory over death. When you believe in that, you are saved once and forever. You are in Christ. You are made holy. You are forgiven. You have received the grace of God. But just because you are saved once does not mean that God is done delivering you. He is delivering you day in and day out. Because we are all like these Christians in Ephesus that have these secret things that we believe in and that we hold on to. And we have to have bonfire moments where we come together and we're like, I'm sorry, God. Let me burn it up. Let me confess. And notice they don't do it alone. They do it together as the church. We're called to confess our sins to one another, to repent together, to be a real community that lives and challenges each other in that way. Not to judge each other. We all have our little idols that we keep in the back. But the house of God, when it dwells in the city, should challenge those things and lead us forward together when the power of the gospel works in us. So this takes place in the city of Ephesus, and it's amazing what is happening, but not everybody is happy. A lot of people are angry because after this bonfire moment, all of these Christians that are there at the fire and they also hear about it, they are no longer buying these spell books. They are no longer buying the little silver statues to take to the temple of Artemis. And so many people are coming to faith, it's affecting the business in the city. Because remember, this is one of the ancient wonders of the world. So a lot of the industries in the city are dependent upon the worship of the goddess Artemis. From the tourists coming in to the people that live there that buy all the stuff to go sacrifice and offer at the temple. And so people are getting worried. As the gospel is being planted and people are coming to faith and their lives are changing, cultural priorities are shifting, cultural spirituality and morality is now shifting to the word of God. And this guy, Demetrius, is really upset. And so he gets together a lot of other people that work in a similar industry. They make these little silver idols for Artemis. He gathers them together and he's like, listen, we got a big problem. Two problems. One 
is that these Christians, these people that are part of the way, you know, the people that don't sleep in the middle of the day, they are a threat to our business and our livelihood. And we can't have that happen. In fact, they're not only a threat to your business and my business, but they are a threat to our city and its magnificence. Because this city is known as a temple of the goddess Artemis. And it will soon be known as nothing if these Christians keep growing and expanding in the city. And it says that that group becomes enraged. And they begin to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And now all these people are enraged, like, let's do something about it. So they head out to the theater in the city that houses 25,000 people. They start to gather people, come into the theater, and they pull a few of the followers of Christ, a few of Paul's companions and leaders in the church, and they bring them in the middle of the theater, and the theater is filling up, and everyone's shouting at them. A lot of people are confused, like, why are we here? But they're shouting. And then for one moment, for two hours, they shout in the, in, in the theater, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're attacking these Christians and berating these Christians. And Paul wants to go. He's like, I'm going to go tell them what's up. 25,000, I don't care. But they tell him, no, 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 don't go. You're going to die. Don't go there. So they keep him back. And as this is taking place in the city, and a riot is literally beginning, they bring in the town mayor. The mayor comes and he tries to settle them down. Things are going crazy. They're so mad at the Christians. They're shouting at these people in the middle of the theater like, what's happening? I don't know. What will we do? The mayor calms them down and he says two things. One, listen, you need to be really careful because this is becoming a riot and Rome does not like riots. So if you have a problem with these Christian leaders or the church or Paul or anyone, you go about it the proper legal way or else Rome's going to come down hard on you in this city. Secondly, they have done nothing wrong. They, they haven't done anything to attack your livelihood. They haven't sought to be hostile. The only thing that you have against them is that they're acting like Christians. And Ephesus was a city that had a lot of different faiths. So the mayor says, listen, go about your business. Leave the theater. Relax. They're just being Christians. They don't want to buy your idols. They don't want to buy the scrolls. They want to follow their God faithfully. You see, what happens here is that the soul of the city is challenged. When the house of God is dwelling in the cities of people, the soul of the city is challenged. So much so, listen, the city of Ephesus becomes one of the centers of Christianity in the world. The very place that was known for the temple of the goddess Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, becomes known as an epicenter for Christianity. That is unbelievable what takes place. The soul of the city is stirred. I want you to imagine, that that's like here in Miami. Miami becomes known not as a party city or a place that you go on South Beach for a crazy weekend. Miami becomes known as a place that you go to seminary. It's not about how many clubs are built. It's about how many seminaries and churches are built. That people go to Miami to grow and be challenged in their faith. Can you imagine? That's like what happens in Ephesus. It becomes known as a center of Christianity for centuries. Because when the house of God is dwelling in the city, doesn't have ivory, ivory tower syndrome, come to us. No, we're going to go to you. 
We're going to be in the culture. It begins to form the culture, and it stirs the soul of the city. Every city has a soul, has an identity, economical distinctives, featured entertainment, a way to behave and interact. You think about New York. When you go to New York, you better have your order ready when you're in line for the deli, or you're going to get kicked to the back of the line. There's a way to behave. If you're a tourist, you go to New York, you go to Broadway. When you come to Miami, you better know how to drive aggressively, or you may never drive. And when tourists come here to Miami, they go to South Beach, which many of us never go to. Every city has an identity, has a soul, it has a culture. And the house of God, when it's really dwelling in the city, it challenges the soul of the city that is not aligned with the kingdom of God and the distinctives that God calls for us to live under. Or what God desires for a city to look like. It challenges the soul of a city. You see... The desire here for those in Ephesus, as the church is growing and people are coming to faith, was not for them to go out and be aggressive or hostile in their faith in the city. Not at all. In fact, that's why there's no charges brought against them, because the mayor says they haven't done anything wrong. All they did was seek to live out their faith in the city faithfully. They wanted to be faithful. They had that bonfire moment and they wanted to go leave that moment and be changed and be different. Be faithful to what they believe is true and is right. That's all they did. And some people were angered because, not, not because they were being offensive, but because the gospel can be offensive. And some people were curious and started to inquire. As we read, it became the epicenter of Christianity. So many people came to faith in Christ in that city, in the surrounding cities. All because they just wanted to live their faith out faithfully in the city. Shook the soul of the city. You may think, how, how could that happen? And how did it happen there? And how could it happen here? Sometimes here's how we think. Here's how we're going to change the city. Here's how we're going to bring transformation to the culture of the city. We're going to stir the soul of the city. We're going to do serve projects like we just did in Alapata today. And we're going to do outreach events. Yes, we will do those things and those things are important. But that is not how a city is transformed. That is not what brings revival. It is not what brings change and transformation that stirs the very foundations of the city. You know what it does? When the followers of Christ, when the house of God lives their faith faithfully in the city. When the people of God do that. You see, the house of God is not a building. It is not a Sunday service. It is not a project. It is not an event. The house of God is a people. And what that means is you are the house of God. You are the house of God. You see, we as a church, as a corporate gathering, we want to dwell in the city. We want to be inviting to the city. We want to be out in the city and serving the city. But listen, the way that a city is changed and the soul of it is stirred is when you, the house of God, dwell in the city with the people, in the culture, 
Not reserved away in your office because you don't want some uncomfortable conversations. Not reserved away in your neighborhood or in your condo because you don't really want to rub shoulders with people that don't think like you and believe like you. No, when you are in the city, dwelling with the people, meeting the people, befriending the people, and just being faithful to what you believe. That is when a city changes. That's when a city changes, when you live as the people of God faithfully. You see, Paul, when he writes the letter to the church in Ephesus, which is called Ephesians, he tells them this, be imitators of God. You as the house of God are called to be an imitator of God. Wherever you are, in your office, in your condo, in Starbucks, when you're out on a Friday night, wherever you are, you are called to be an imitator of God. Jesus said in Matthew that you are to, to shine the light of Christ, that you are to sh be the light of the world in the city so that people may glorify God. They may see him through you. You are the house of God, the light of Christ. Here's a question I want to ask you. Does your faith stir anyone? Does it stir anyone up? Does it cause them to inquire? To maybe be confused about why you choose certain things and don't do other things? Maybe even anger some people. Not because you're being offensive, but because the gospel can be offensive. Does your faith stir anyone? You see, we are the house of God, and you are the house of God dwelling in the city, and you and me are called to be a home on the move. You are not the house of God just when you're here on Sunday at 5 p.m. You are the house of God when you are in every sector of this city and every person that you interact with. And listen, there's a great encouragement as you are the house of God, on the move in the city, there's two things that you can know. One is this, is that God is with you. That is one of the great promises and encouragements of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of God is living and active and dwelling within you. He is a comforter. He is a counselor. He encourages. He convicts. He brings peace when you're uneasy. The Spirit of God is with you and he is for you. But listen, as you are out in the city on the move, the, a home on the move in the city, God is also seen through you. He's not just for you, but he's also seen through you in the way you live, in the way you talk, in the way you act. So if we're going to be a city or be a church that is on the move, a few things should be true of you. One, people should ask about your lifestyle. Your lifestyle should challenge the cultural priorities of this city. People should ask you, hey, why do you sacrifice your time and your talent for other people? What, why would you be so generous with the things that you've received, your resources, your possession, your money? Why would you prioritize going to church every week? Why would you prioritize joining a small group and getting, why would you do that? People should ask. They should inquire because your lifestyle is different. should challenge the culturally accepted lifestyle. And your beliefs and your behavior should be different too. It should challenge the cultural spirituality and morality where people ask, hey, why don't you do that? Why are you not okay with that? Why don't you want to be a part of that? 
Help me understand why you would behave in that way. Why would you be kind to that person when they were so rude to you? Why aren't you engaging in this gossip at the office about that person? Why are you saying no to that event? Why did you leave the party early? Your beliefs and your behavior should cause people to inquire and to ask so that you might reveal to them the attractive and powerful gospel that changed your life and changes the lives of others. That is how the soul of the city is stirred, through you and through me. And listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this because I believe it's true. I think what happened in Ephesus can happen in Miami. I really do. You're like, come on, there's no way. This is Miami. Can't have any seminaries here. I believe it. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Listen, do you believe in the power of the gospel? Okay. Can you imagine if every single Christian in this city decided to be a home on the move, to be the house of God on the move in every sector of their life, where they chose a different lifestyle than what was culturally accepted, where they believed and behaved differently than everybody in their office and their social circles. Do you think the soul of this city would be stirred? It would. And you know what? Do you know how it happened in Ephesus? It's not going to happen by a somehow magically gathering every Christian in this city into American Airlines Arena or FTX Cryptocurrency Arena now. <laughs> and the other arenas around the city and Hard Rock. I still call it Joe Robbie. That's my OGs in Miami. You know about Joe Robbie. It's not going to happen by getting everybody together and just telling everybody, hey, let's do it. You know how it happens? It happens like it happened in Ephesus when a smaller group of people get together and they burn their idols and they live different. Here's a question. Do you believe that we can be the small group of people that burn our idols together and live different? And God uses this church, uses you this week and every week thereon to bring about revival in the city that encourages other churches so that we might see Miami stirred and changed for the gospel. I believe it. Do you? Come on. Do you believe it? Amen. I want you to be on the move this week. I'm calling God to bring me on the move this week because I believe that God can stir the soul of this city through us. So let's burn our idols and let's go on the move together. Amen.